What do you see when you look into the face of your neighbor? Do you see a stranger? A friend? A foreigner? Or a refugee? Do you see someone to avoid? Someone to hide from? Do you see someone to hate or someone to love? Can you see yourself in their face? Do you see the face of Jesus? Okay, we are having dinner with Jesus, and we are spending some time seeing where he goes. And one of the things that we discover is this. Jesus never turns down a free meal. I am much like Jesus in this, uh, in this uh, category. So he never turns down a free meal, but we know that it's not just about nourishment, that Jesus actually goes and spends time at the table with a wide variety of people. But he does so so that he can reveal who he is to them and so that he can call them to repentance. And remember, we're talking about repentance in the sense of having a change of mind and coming home. That's repentance in the New and Old Testament. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And I'm actually really surprised that Jesus keeps going to these dinner tables. And today, we're going to see him once again at the house of a Pharisee, a very prominent Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees. These Pharisees had a lot of power. They had a lot of influence. And they were a bit of a thorn in the flesh for Jesus. But he keeps putting them himself in these places of conflict. And I'm amazed that he does. And so we're going to look at what happens. But one of the things I really want to point out is that not all the Pharisees were against Jesus. Sometimes we get this impression and we, we uh, talk down about the Pharisees and we condemn them and criticize them. But not all the Pharisees were against Jesus. And we saw this last week a little bit. We mentioned a couple of prominent Pharisees. Uh, Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea, they were both Pharisees, but these two guys had the courage to go and take down the body of Jesus off the cross. When everyone else scattered, they were present. And that tells you something about their courage. And so we see that even in the apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee. So just keep that in mind. When we talk about the Pharisees, don't discount all of them. And that's the same truth for the church in general, perhaps even today. Sometimes we hear negative things about the church and we paint everybody with the same brush. We don't realize that there's actually goodness within that too. And that's what's happening with these Pharisees. But if you turn to uh, Luke chapter 13 and verse 31, you realize that there were Pharisees um, that were on Jesus' side even before the cross and the resurrection. Verse 31 of uh, Luke 13 says this, At that time, some Pharisees said to him, Get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. So these are Pharisees that were warning Jesus. They were on his side. They were concerned about his safety, his well-being. 
And of course, Jesus doesn't run. He actually replies, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out. And he just lays into it, right? But that's amazing to me that there's this, you know, Pharisees, we often think in a negative light, but there's some positive examples. In fact, the Pharisees themselves recognized that there were difficulties within their own group. And they actually had seven categories of Pharisees. They had categories for everything, right? Well, they had seven categories of, of uh, Pharisees, and six of them are not flattering. And so I'm just going to mention these uh, seven different categories briefly because actually I think they're kind of hilarious. Um, and it's hilarious because they don't translate well from Hebrew to English. So the names that they use are kind of funny to me. Maybe it's just a bad sense of humor. I don't know. But we'll see who else laughs who we're together with. Um, But also, I think they're instructive to us because I think there's actually categories in our own heart, maybe within within the church in general, within Christianity, that we might resonate with as we look at this critical approach from the Pharisees of themselves. Category number one, called... The shoulder Pharisees. Now, these weren't like linebackers, Pharisees with big shoulders. These were Pharisees, apparently, who liked to kind of wear their good deeds on their shoulders for everyone to see. It's kind of an expression, right? They wanted to do their good deeds in such a way that everybody saw that they were doing it. You ever been in that position where you just want a little bit of credit? I've been there from time to time. Well, the shoulder Pharisees were doing it all the time. And so they were criticized for, um, for performing their good works to be seen by other people. Here's category number two. The wait a little Pharisee. What would that be about? The wait a little Pharisee. These were Pharisees that had all kinds of excuses for not doing good deeds today. They'd put it off to tomorrow. They'd be like, well, I've got, you know, nap time at 2, and I've got that thing at, at uh, 3 o'clock, and, and then supper. I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll do that good thing tomorrow. And they were literally called, wait a little, Pharisees. Okay, I'm going to save my favorite one for the end. Here's another one, though. The humpback Pharisees. I'm not making this up, by the way. You can go and research this and read it. This is how it translates into English. The humpback Pharisees. They literally walked around, bent over double, as if they had some chronic illness, in order to appear more humble to everyone else. And that's what they did. Can you imagine? So if you see me limping, you know, you, now you're going to think, does he really have a problem, or is he one of these humpback Pharisees? Anyway, that was one of them. Okay, the ever-reckoning Pharisees. These were the bean-counter Pharisees, only they weren't counting coin, They were counting good deeds. They would keep like a score on the wall somewhere of all their good deeds. These were the ever-reckoning Pharisees. And then this group you might actually resonate with. The fearful Pharisees. These are the ones that were constantly living in the fear of the wrath of God. Do we ever fall into that trap sometimes? We fear that God is constantly angry at us. That something that's happened in our life is because God is punishing us. Or that there's, there's something out to get us because we're not living correctly with God. And these fearful Pharisees were constantly living in fear. Okay, now here is my favorite category. Before we get to the one good category, here's my favorite one. The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Now, why were they bruised and bleeding? This is ridiculous, actually. 
Uh, according to the Pharisees, if you went out for a walk, and you're a man, because they all were, uh, you were not allowed to look upon a woman. And so this is why, you know, when the disciples come and they find Jesus talking to a woman and, and entering into theological conversation with a woman, they're amazed and surprised and a little disturbed by it. Because the rule of the Pharisees is, you don't even look at another woman or at a woman. So what would these guys do? They would close their eyes while they walked around town. <laughs> right? Or they would put a blindfold on and they would bang into things. Bruised shins and broken arms and, and bloodied faces. And then they would wear this as kind of a sign of honor that they were following God with all their heart. <laughs> so the bruised and bleeding Pharisees I find hilarious and slightly disturbing. But among all of these, there's a category for this, the God-loving Pharisees. So remember, this is not Jesus making this group up. This is the Pharisees themselves saying, hey, we've got some issues with our own ranks. We recognize that. But in amongst all this ridiculousness and waywardness and, and misguidedness, there are God-loving Pharisees. And they said, these were copies of Abraham and lived in faith and love. There's hope for us yet, right? <laughs> in all our misguidedness, <laughs> that there's God-loving Pharisees and there's God-loving space within our own hearts as we go through this. Well, as Jesus sits at the dinner table of yet another Pharisee, what's the flashpoint? And really, I just want to focus on the first part of this passage. There's so much in there. I hope you go back and read it and look at the lessons. But the first part, what is the flashpoint? The flashpoint is a man with dropsy. Now, we read in the New Living uh, that he had swollen arms and legs. In older translations or other translations, you might read the word dropsy, which is a short form for the word hydropsy, which is a medical condition. Now, it's interesting that Luke includes that because Luke is a physician. And so sometimes he gives us a little extra detail uh, from his background uh, to help us understand. And this hydropsy uh, scenario or condition would have caused this man to retain a lot of fluid and his limbs would have been swollen, like very obviously swollen up. Why was this important? I think it was important because it would be very obvious when he was healed, right? Now, I think that this man was planted there by the Pharisees because the verse tells us that people were watching Jesus carefully. And the word used there is kind of like they were spying on him. It was like an, a word for espionage. They were watching to see what he would do. And they grabbed this poor guy off the street. Good for the guy in the end, but at the moment, very embarrassing, right? And brought this guy in all swollen up and put him at the table to see what Jesus would do. I mean, that's so twisted when you really think about it. Uh, but he was swollen like this, and Jesus, what does he do? He heals him. And he doesn't heal him in the sense of saying, I'm going to touch you, and in two to three years' time, you'll experience some kind of you know, remedy for this situation. No, when we read of healing by Jesus in the New Testament, it was obvious and instantaneous, at least close to being instantaneous. Some cases, it was when they presented themselves to the priest. So it would have been obvious to everyone at the table. This guy was swollen like a pufferfish, and then next moment, he was normal. 
it would have been obvious to everyone. And the reaction of everyone at that table should have been what? Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that great for this person? They should have been rejoicing for this poor man. But instead, what was the reaction at the table? They were happy that they had caught Jesus breaking the rules. That's how misguided they were. They couldn't even celebrate this man's health and relief and the love that Jesus showed him because they were so hell-bent on catching Jesus breaking the rules. And that's the twisted situation that Jesus finds himself in here. Look at that. He just broke the Sabbath rules. Well, did Jesus actually break the Sabbath rules? Did he actually sin by breaking the Sabbath? This is an important question for us. Because we teach that Jesus was sinless. He did not break the law of God. So what's happening here? Well, in fact, seven times in the gospel accounts, Jesus intentionally heals someone on the Sabbath, and it drives the Pharisees crazy that he keeps doing this. Seven times Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and he does this for a lot of reasons. Partly to reveal their hypocrisy. Again, that they're so focused on the rules that they can't see the love of God in action. But also to show that he is Lord of the Sabbath. If he, in fact, is God and he established the Sabbath, then he is in charge of the Sabbath. <laughs> but I think mostly Jesus heals on the Sabbath to remind people of this, that the Sabbath was meant to be a gift and not a burden. I think it's so important for all of us as we read through Scripture. And hopefully, if you've taken up the New Testament challenge, you're continuing to read. And if you've fallen behind, don't worry. Just, just find the spot where you're supposed to read and keep on reading. We just want to encourage people to read their Bibles. Uh, but as you read through Scripture, sometimes you read about rules and laws, and, and you think, wow, this feels very heavy. But it was never meant to be a burden. It was meant to be a gift, and that's true of Sabbath. The reality is, though, that the Pharisees were so concerned about keeping the Sabbath holy that they came up with their own rules. And that's what's happening here. They thought they had to somehow protect God. What's that line in U2? Samuel, help me out here. I know you love the band, too. Um, but stop helping God across the road like a little old lady right? The, the Pharisees want to help God across the road like a little old. They want to protect God. They want to protect the Sabbath. And one of the ways that they did this is they devised a whole bunch of rules around the Sabbath. In these rules, they actually had 39 categories of work. I mean, the rules upon rules upon rules. But there's 39 categories of the kind of work that you couldn't, couldn't do. And some of them are hilarious, and some of them are, are strange again. Like if a chicken laid an egg, I mean, the chicken does, doesn't have to keep the Sabbath, just to be clear. Um, but if the chicken laid the egg, you could not collect it or do anything with it. However, if you had a Gentile buddy, you could send the Gentile to go do it for you. I, I kind of felt like that growing up in the Plymouth Brethren Assembly. We weren't allowed to do anything on Sunday but we could go out to eat at a restaurant. I guess the heathens could prepare our food for us, something like that. But that's kind of what happened. You know, you couldn't light a candle, right, because that would be a heat source. Uh, but if you had a Gentile buddy, <laughs> you could light that candle for you. And so it's, you see what happens when we get caught up in rules, and then we find loopholes, and then we just get so caught up in all of this, and we miss the gift of God. 
We miss God's grace when we give ourselves to these rules. So when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he didn't break God's law. He broke the Pharisees' rules. And there's a big difference and an important difference. It's man-made tradition versus God's good law. And he was willing to break man-made tradition. And so should we. And we have to be careful in understanding the distinction between what God has actually asked us to do and required us to do and what we have created as part of our rule book in order to protect what? Protect our religious status, protect our safety, whatever it is. So this is what we're seeing happening in this crisis point at the dinner table. We're seeing the difference between the burden of religious systems and the freedom of the gospel. And that's something that we really have to get a handle on. I want to mention three differences very briefly today. Three differences between the burden of religious systems and the freedom of the gospel. Because I want to ask us in the end, do we have religion or do we have Jesus? So here's three differences. First difference is this, the operating principle. What's driving us? What's the operating principle? In religious systems, it's obedience equals acceptance. If I obey, if I follow the rules, then somehow God will be pleased with me and will accept me. In the gospel, it's turned upside down. (laughs) Because we are accepted in Jesus, he's the one that was obedient. He's the one that was obedient on our behalf. Because we are accepted, we want to obey. We want to do what God has asked us to do. Hear the difference between that? The difference in the operating principle. Here's another difference. Difference in motivation. Religious systems, including the religious system that we often create, is motivated by fear. The fear of hell, perhaps. I don't want to go to hell, therefore, I will do this. And maybe that's how we became a follower of Jesus. I know for some of us, that was emphasized. The hell, fire, and brimstone preachers of my youth made me scared. In fact, uh, I saw um, on Facebook there was... um, Old Kelowna is a group that I belong to because I grew up in um, the Okanagan Valley. And uh, they showed a picture of West Bank in around 19, early 1970s. And I could see where our house was. And it was right across from the drive-in theater. And it's so ridiculous. There's a big drive-in theater there in the field. Some of you might remember it if you went through uh, in the 70s and 80s through West Bank. And it was always so funny because they directed the screen toward the houses. They could have directed it toward the field, but so we could sit on our deck with our transistor radio. We could watch all the movies for free, except we weren't supposed to watch movies because we were part of the Brethren Assembly. But anyway, so, um, but there was one movie that my uh, mom and dad took me to uh, in that drive-in theater, and I was so excited to go. We pulled up in our Pontiac Parisienne with the top down. You know, we had our blankets, we had our picnic, and we were ready to watch this great movie, and I didn't realize it. It was a Christian movie, and Christian movies today are much better than they were back then. And the movie was called, some of you might remember it, Hal Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth. And it scared the heck out of me. <laughs> And all I remember of the whole movie was the world on fire. Flames, fire. I felt I could feel the heat off of the screen. And it terrified me, quite honestly. And it terrified me for a lot of years. 
And I wonder if sometimes we fall into that trap of trying to motivate people into the kingdom of God through this fear mechanism. And I would suggest that that is a sign and symptom of religious systems, is motivation by fear. Because what do we find in the gospel? In the gospel, we find that perfect love casts out all fear. And because of the love of God and because God has loved us, it's because of his mercy that we are led to repentance. That's a very different motivator. We are motivated by love in the gospel. Okay, third thing, not only operating principle motivation, but also the attitude. If we are given to religious systems, we often have an attitude of being superior to others, right? If we have a bit of a liberal or left-leaning bent and we're given to religious systems, we look at all the bigots over there, right? And if we are slightly right-leaning and we, you know, have our, are given to religious systems, we look at all the laziness over there or whatever it is, right? And we elevate ourselves. We feel somehow better because we're following the rules according to our religious system. That is not the gospel, the gospel is not feeling superior to others. The gospel is humility because it is all of grace. It is all of God. It is not of us. I love this anonymous quote about uh, the difference between religion and relationship. This person said, Religion is a guy in church thinking about fishing. Relationship is a guy out fishing thinking about God. You can, you know, substitute fishing with whatever you like. But that idea of religion is, yes, I'm showing up, I'm sitting in the pew, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, I'm following the rules, but really I'm thinking about what I want to do and what I want to be doing, right? Uh, whereas relationship is, in the process of doing life, God is present. God is infused in everything that we do together. And we're not there perfectly because I know that sometimes in church, I'm thinking about other things. Yes, pastors do that too, right? So that's not what I'm criticizing. But this, we're just pointing out this difference. If we're caught up in religious systems that lead us in the direction of the Pharisees, that lead us in the direction of these rules, then we're going to miss the grace of God and the freedom of the gospel. This freedom that Jesus was celebrating and signifying by healing this poor man and setting him free. He didn't even make the man have to sit for the rest of the meal. That was a grace by itself. He let him go. He set him free. And uh, this is the example of the gospel to us. So, bottom line is this. The Pharisees should have been thrilled for this man who was healed. But instead, they were happy that they caught Jesus breaking the rules. Let's not be happy when we catch people breaking the rules. These Pharisees, they loved their religious system more than they loved their neighbor. And that's the bottom line. So what about you and me? Where do we fit in this? Do we fall into the trap of loving our religious systems more than we love our neighbor? I think it's a danger that we have to be aware of and that we have to avoid. Do we have religion or do we believe the gospel? Do we have religion or do we have Jesus? I would say, give me Jesus every time because that's what I need and that's what the world needs around us. Are we driven by rules, living in fear, feeling superior to others? Or are we accepted by God, motivated by gratitude, and living in humility? For it is by grace 
that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that none of us can boast. This is what we discover when we have dinner with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the freedom that is found within the gospel of your Son. We thank you that he lived the perfect life, that he was obedient even unto death, and even death on the cross. But thank you that he didn't stay dead, that he rose again from the dead to declare victory, not only for himself, but for all of us. Victory over sin, over evil, promise of hope and for a future And none of that has to do with guilt and shame that we need to carry at all. So, Father, thank you for the good news of your Son. Help us to live that way in our lives and help us to live that way in our communities and our families. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.